The scripture reading for this morning is from 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 21. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we share a blessing, or which we share a bless, blessing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. We all partake in one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat, eat the sacrifices shares in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything. No, but I say that the things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and of the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word. Well, this morning we're continuing to uh, march forward in our mid-sized series on growing in grace. buffer series between 1st Timothy and entering into the Gospel of John. I don't know about you, but as we've been walking through these uh, sermons, my own appreciation for the Lord has been increasing. Uh, My own delight in using the means of grace has been growing and um, enjoying more communion with with my God. And uh, I hope that's the case for you, uh, if these sermons are a blessing to no one else than me, I guess I'll have to accept that. But uh, I, hope, I hope that the Lord will use it to bless your pursuit of Him. Today I want to finish looking at the Lord's table as a means of grace. And uh, our main outline for today, for those of you who like to, to write things down and take the notes, um, Our main outline for today is, uh, first main point, the Protestant understanding of sharing in Christ coming from 1 Corinthians 10.16. What did that mean historically to Protestants coming out of the Reformation? And then secondly, a biblical understanding of sharing in Christ. Where did they get their idea of what it means to share in Christ? Well, they got it from the scriptures, and I hope to show that by the end of today. So those are the two main points we're going to look at. As we begin, would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, it's a holy matter to open up your word and to come before it or to preach it and to sit under it, to hear it read, Lord, as we've seen in the past. Even hearing your word read is nothing less than hearing the words that you have breathed out for our good being pronounced over us. It's nothing less than hearing the product of the divine voice or you speaking to us from your word. I pray you would remove any scales, any calluses, any hardness of heart or mind that would keep us from seeing your word in that light. Lord, you are always speaking through your word to us. 
It's our own hardness that keeps us from hearing. And so I pray this morning you would soften our hearts, Lord, that you would help us know you in spirit and in truth and worship you in spirit and in truth. Those are the worshipers you're seeking. Lord, not those who have anything they think they can offer to you. But those who simply come and bow before the Lord Jesus Christ and receive all that you have promised to give us in him. Lord, let us worship you in in that conviction and in that truth this morning. Father, we pray for those, the many who are not with us today, those who are sick, those who are traveling, those who have just had a busy weekend and are unable to be here. Lord, I know that people are going through joyful times and people are going through trying times in this body. And I I pray that you would minister to each one of them in the ways that only you know how to today. Lord, let your word draw them near to you. Let your spirit fill their hearts and flood their minds with the truth of Jesus, Lord, and let them know you have not forsaken them. You will not abandon them and you will be with them to the end. Lord, we look forward to the time when they're restored to fellowship with us here and uh, we pray until then that you would keep them in our hearts and minds, that we, like Samuel, would not sin against you by failing to pray for them. Lord, we pray for your blessing to be with us as we come to your word. May your nearness be known. May our love for you rise. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Well, as I've already made clear in uh, the last three or four weeks that we've been looking at the Lord's table, um, 1 Corinthians 10.16 is one of the most important verses for understanding how the table functions as a means of grace in the life of the believer. Because this verse points to and magnifies what is at the heart and what's involved in the essence of the worship that takes place at the table of the Lord. Our worship at the table is more than just a memory, to borrow a phrase from Richard Barcelos. It's more than just a memory. It is more than simply remembering or even commemorating what Christ has done to save us. When we take up the bread and we take up the cup and we worship Christ at His table, We are doing more than simply remembering what our Lord has done to save wretched sinners like us from what we deserve. That is part of it, but that's not all that is going on. 1 Corinthians 10.16 tells us that what is actually taking place when we eat of the bread and what is actually taking place when we drink of the cup in faith is a sharing or a participation or a fellowship a communion with the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. There's an actual participation in Christ's blood and in Christ's body that is taking place when we eat of the bread and when we drink of the cup. Now last week we asked the blunt question, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to be sharing in Christ's body and blood when we come 
to worship him at the table. When we eat the bread and drink the cup, what does it mean that we have a communion or a sharing in his body and blood? Well, we looked at the Roman Catholic understanding of how the table functions in that way. Roman Catholics believe that partaking in the table is a sharing in the body and blood of Christ because the worshiper is literally ingesting the body and the blood of Christ. You're sharing in the body and blood because you are actually eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It's known as the doctrine of transubstantiation where the substance, substantiation, the substance of the bread and the wine is transformed into the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. And we looked at why they believe in that doctrine. It's so that they can have an adequate representation of a sacrifice to make reparations for their sins. In the sacrifice of the Mass, the Son of God is being offered up all over again, though not in a bloody manner, in an unbloody manner. You guys remember that language? The Son of God is being represented as a sacrifice to cover our sins. And then the benefits of that sacrifice are only received when you eat that flesh and you drink that blood that has been offered. Now the Lutheran view kind of branches away from that. We saw last week that uh, Luther claimed that fellowship with Christ at the table comes from eating the flesh of the Son of Man and drinking His blood, but not a literal eating or a literal drinking. It is eating the bread and drinking the cup that contains the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. The body and blood of the Lord Jesus is within those elements. It is not belonging to the substance of those elements. That is known as consubstantiation. That is the blood and body of Christ are with the substance of the elements. You guys didn't know you were coming to a lecture this morning, did you? A little dry. Stay with me though. Luther likened what takes place in the table, the elements of the table, to what happens when water meets a sponge. The sponge absorbs the water. It doesn't become the water, but it contains the water. The water is within the sponge. Well, in that same way, the body and blood of Christ are within the elements at the table. The elements contain his body and blood in some mystical way. And... Uh, Though he denied cannibalism, he still believed that we are feeding upon the blood and body of Christ at the table. And when we do so in faith, we are receiving the blessings that attend that, which are the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and salvation. Now, the majority of Protestants broke away from both the Lutheran and the Catholic understanding of what it means to share in Christ when believers come to worship at his table. Protestants understood that the table functions as a means of grace, not because you are feeding upon the body and blood of Christ when you come to the table, but because of what the table signifies. The table is a means of grace because of what is symbolized in the table. And the Holy Spirit uses when the believer comes to the table in true faith, calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit uses the symbol of the reality to press the spiritual realities of blessings in Christ upon the soul of the believer. And so for the Protestant, this sharing in Christ was not 
talking about a physical communion with the Lord. It was talking about something spiritual. Now, just to prove my point today, I'm going to beat a horse for a little while, and we'll see if it's dead when I'm done. But John Calvin, I'm going to quote some, some church history, quotes from church history. John Calvin said the following in relation to the ministry of the Holy Spirit that takes place in the table of the Lord. Following what Christ says about the ministry of the Spirit in John 16, 14, where Jesus says that when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will glorify me, for He will take of what is mine and disclose it to you. That is, He's going to take what belongs to Christ. He's going to take the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, and He's going to open it up for the hearts and the minds of His believers to understand and receive. That is the, the essence of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. John Calvin understood that that was definitional of the Holy Spirit's ministry, but he took that principle and applied it to what is taking place at the worship and the table. He said, the sacred partaking of Christ's flesh and blood, of His flesh and blood, by which Christ pours His life into us, He also testifies and seals in the supper. Not by presenting a vain and empty sign, but by manifesting there the effectiveness of His Spirit to fulfill what He has promised. You guys understand that? John Calvin understood that the fellowship that takes place between the believer and Christ at the table is the result of the Holy Spirit taking the promises of Christ and bringing them down upon the heart and the soul of the believer with almighty power and allowing the believer to experience the blessings that belong to him or her through the blood and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. For Calvin, the communion of the believer at the Lord's table is a spiritual communion because it's a communion that is mediated by the Holy Spirit. It's not a fellowship defined by physically eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Christ at the table, as Rome would say, and as Luther got really close to saying. No, it is a spiritual communion that is worked into the hearts of believers through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to get to this in a minute, but what that means for us is that worship of Christ at His table cannot take place the way it ought to take place unless we are those who are filled with and experiencing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It becomes an empty, rote ritual apart from the ministry of the Spirit bringing the truths that are conveyed in the elements to bear upon our souls. Without that, it's empty. So when we come and we have this spiritual communion with Christ, as Calvin would say, we're not taking the literal flesh and blood of Jesus and having it infused somehow into our being. We are taking the benefits that are secured for us through the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit taking those blessings lavishes them upon our souls as we partake in faith. So that was Calvin. Now, the Belgic Confession, which was written in 1561, right around the time of Calvin, or in the time of Calvin, the Belgic Confession said something very similar to this topic. This confession was written up for believers in the Netherlands in the mid-1500s. 
And it says concerning the ordinances that the ordinances are visible signs and seals of something internal and invisible by means of which God works in us through the power of His Spirit or through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me break that down just a little bit. You see the confession there. These brothers said that the the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's table, they are visible signs and seals of something that is internal and invisible. That is, they are visible expressions of an internal and invisible communion that the believer already has with the Lord Jesus. That as John 6 54 says, Jesus saying, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That is the substance and the reality which is already taking place in the heart of the believer when he or she comes to the table. They are already by faith eating the blood of, or drinking the blood of Christ and feeding upon his flesh. They are spiritually communing with the eternal life that the Father has given us through his Son. And through that communion, when they come to the table, they are expressing openly and visibly and outwardly a a, a communion that is actually taking place in their hearts. It is a communion of coming to Christ, a communion of believing in Him, of receiving Him as the living bread that came down out of heaven to give life to the world. It's a communion of abiding in Christ and feasting upon Him to find nourishment for all of our spiritual longings. That kind of communion is what the believer carries with him or her to the table and expresses through the visible signs of taking the bread and the cup. The confession goes on to say these visible signs are the means by which God works in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now notice that. These Protestants said that practicing the ordinances is not something that we are doing for God. Nor is it even something that we are doing for ourselves. These brothers and sisters believe that when believers come to partake of the table of the Lord, God is working in them through what they are doing. How did he do that? Well, in line with what John Calvin said, he did that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to point out in light of that, that contrary to what Rome taught, God's work in the heart of the believer at the table was not done ex opera operato. Because remember what that means? It's not done by the work being worked. You don't receive grace from God just because you came up to the table and took of the bread and took of the cup. It's not just through going through the ritual or the act that somehow you gain God's favor or earn brownie points with Him. That's how I grew up. I believed that that is what was happening at the table. I was baptized. I went to communion. I partook of the bread and the wine, and the Lord was happy with me. I had done my duty. But there was no faith in it. There was no love in it. There was no fellowship instigated by the Holy Spirit taking place whenever I approached the Lord at His table. It was just an empty ritual. Nothing is communicated to to the believer simply by the work being worked when you come to this table. Believers, nor are believers passively receiving this blessing. It is only when their worship at the table is an act of appropriating 
and receiving Christ spiritually by faith, it is only then that their worship at the table becomes something that is blessed by the Spirit. Belgic Confession goes on to say specifically in the worship of the Lord's Supper that Jesus Christ nourishes and maintains the spiritual life of believers when they eat him. That is, when he is appropriated and received spiritually by faith. Now, to appropriate something simply means to take something and to make it your own. Christ nourishes his people at the table when they use the table as a means of appropriating him. Do you understand that? When you use the table as a means of laying hold upon Christ, of laying hold of the blessings that are guaranteed for us through his death, through his blood shed for us, when you approach the table as a means of drawing near to Christ, it is then that God is pleased to own the table as a means of grace for your soul. There's something else these believers in the 1500s when they wrote up the Belgic Confession, something else that they were pointing out whenever they made these statements. They were pointing out that the believer must do this must approach the table and worship Christ in the Spirit. In other words, worship at the table is a spiritual matter. And it can only be rightly expressed when it is consciously performed in the power and under the direction of the Holy Spirit. You guys remember what 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul says there. The benediction to the believers in Corinth May the love of the Lord Jesus, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with us all or be with you all. That kind of fellowship that Paul is talking about there is something that he assumes the believers know exactly what he means. They know what he means when he talks about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And it is with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that these believers who adhered to and wrote up the Belgic Confession, it is with that Holy Spirit that they believed you must come to the table. You must worship at the table with this fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, the whole exercise will be in vain. We must draw near to appropriate Christ and to receive Him spiritually by faith, but this only takes place when that worship is being governed and guided by the Spirit of Christ. The one who takes that which belongs to Christ and discloses it for us. So those who wrote up that confession, or the, the, the man who wrote that up and the believers who adhered to it, they obviously did not believe that the table was designed in order to achieve salvation or in order to gain or earn forgiveness of sins by making reparations to God. Now, they saw it simply as the means that the Holy Spirit uses to confirm and more richly apply the spiritual benefits of Christ to the souls and hearts of his people. Now, the Baptists, up until the 1800s, believed all these same things in regard to the communion that believers ought to experience with Christ in the Lord's Supper. Thomas Helwes, a Baptist of the early 1600s, wrote, 
that the Lord's Supper is an outward manifestation of the spiritual communion between Christ and the faithful. Sounds a lot like what John Calvin wrote. Benjamin Keach, a Baptist minister from the mid to late 1600s, he wrote, The worthy receivers of the Lord's Supper are by faith made partakers with Christ's body and blood, with all his benefits to the spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. I think my favorite expression of the Protestant view of spiritual communion with Christ at his table comes from a hymn that I stumbled upon while I was preparing for this message, written by a Baptist minister named Benjamin Bedome. I think I'm pronouncing his name right. One of you can correct me if I'm not. Is that right? Bedome? Yeah, I think it is. Benjamin wrote this in one of his hymns concerning the Lord's table. He says, Oh, for a glimmering sight of my expiring Lord. Sure pledge of what yon worlds of light will to the saints afford. In that delightful place, exempt from sin and pain, they ever see his beauteous face and with him live and reign. Now at his feast divine, which his own hand has spread, may I behold him in the wine and see him in the bread. Rich hymns belong to our history. Bedome, a Baptist, though he clearly did not agree with Rome and Lutheran understandings of the fellowship with Christ at the table, it's evident from this hymn that he still viewed the table as a place where the believer's soul finds fellowship with Christ. We hear in this language from, that, that for him, the table is basically the bridge that spans the gap between the believer on earth and Christ in heaven. Sinclair Ferguson said this. I don't have this in a slide, but just listen to what Sinclair Ferguson said in, in relation to that idea. Sinclair Ferguson said, In the supper, the Spirit comes to close the gap, as it were, between Christ in heaven and the believer on earth and to give communion with the exalted Savior. That's what Bedome is getting at in this hymn. That the believers currently in glory who are reigning with Christ right now in glory are beholding His beauteous face. They're in face-to-face -face fellowship with Christ, but you and I, while we're here on this earth, we are not. What does 1 Peter 1, 8 through 10 say? We love Him whom we have not seen. Though we have not seen Him, we believe and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. There is a joy, there is a communion, there is a real tangible attachment that we have to the Lord Jesus Christ even now, though we are not physically with Him. Bedom is considering that in light of where the saints are who have already passed on to glory. He's saying they are with Christ in His unveiled presence. They are beholding His beauteous face. They are worshiping Him in the spirit of holiness in a way that you and I can only dream of. And in this conflict of His own soul of saying, I believe in Him whom I have not seen, but I long to see Him the way my brothers and sisters are seeing Him right now. It's in that conflict that this hymn is born. 
And he comes to the table and he treats it as though it's something that his hands can hold on to, that his eyes can look at and see Christ, though he cannot see him physically now. See, though Christ promises that he will be spiritually present among us as his people, Right now, we live in the time of his physical absence. And I hope you know that. I hope you, uh, what I mean by that is I hope you feel the absence of the Lord in the world right now. There is a measure of fellowship that we have in the Spirit that makes Christ real. He's not Santa Claus, right? I've said this before. He's not the tooth fairy. He's not something we've made up in our own minds, some figment of our imagination. We are those who have experienced the reality of His power. We know the reality of His presence. His Spirit has brought upon us the effects of grace and the gospel. We know Christ in truth. But we don't know Him the way we long to know Him. And though we see Him with the eyes of faith, we do not yet see Him with our physical eyes. We live in this time of Christ's physical absence. And the way that Bedom saw the table of the Lord being used by the Spirit was basically as a means of bringing us into a greater fellowship with the unseen Christ. A fellowship that is to be repeated at the table until the very last trumpet sounds and Christ descends from glory. When all the world will see Him as He really is. I, I loved that hymn. I read that multiple times. And couldn't get over it. This is actually what made John Calvin say that this communion with Christ takes place when we soar up to heaven to be with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. John Calvin had a rich theology of the Holy Spirit. I hate that he is maligned and treated as just some academic, speculative theologian. He was a man who knew what it was to walk and keep in step with the Spirit of God. But he says this communion with Christ that takes place at the table, this communion with Christ takes place when we soar up to heaven to be with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to what he says next. This communion is a secret too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. And to speak more plainly, I rather experience it than understand it. That is worship and fellowship with Christ at His table. It is something that though you grapple with your wording and you try to describe and explain it, it is something that is beyond your ability to comprehend. Something rather that you experience than understand. I agree with Calvin there. That's from his Institutes, Book 4, Chapter 17, Paragraph 31. Now, all these quotes that I brought out from the 1500s and 1600s and 1700s and 1800s, these are, these are simply proving that Protestants have historically viewed the Lord's table as a means of grace. Because of the spiritual communion and the spiritual fellowship that they receive with Christ when they worship Him at His table. Now, all of that sounds good. 
And those are some beautiful statements that I've read from Protestants who have come before us. But for us, the question is, how do we know that this is the type of communion, fellowship, sharing in Christ that 1 Corinthians 10, 16 is talking about? All the language sounds wonderful, but is that really what the Bible means when it speaks of sharing in Christ? Well, I believe that in order to answer that, we need to look at this matter in connection with the only other place that the word sharing appears in the book of 1 Corinthians. I believe that as we compare these two texts, 1 Corinthians 10.16 and then 1 Corinthians 1.9, as we compare these two places where the word for communion and fellowship appears to, in 1 Corinthians, I believe that we will see or gain some clarity as to what 1 Corinthians 10.16 means when it talks about sharing in the blood and the body of Christ. So a biblical understanding of what it means to share in Christ at His table. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, fellowship with Christ is something that believers already have and already experience. See what it says there. Paul writing to these same Corinthians, he says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now that's the only other time in the letter of 1 Corinthians that the word for sharing that appears in 1 Corinthians 10.16 is the only other time that word appears. What this verse is talking about is a communion with Christ that believers possess and experience from the moment that the Father calls them to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. That moment when God the Father decided to awaken us out of our sin. You remember that moment? Maybe for you it was a season and not a moment that you can identify. But either way, there was a period of time in every believer's life where the Father was calling that believer into fellowship with Christ Jesus. Awakening us out of sin, causing the light of His grace in Christ to overwhelm the darkness that flooded our hearts. When His mighty voice roared from Zion, heavenly Jerusalem, drawing us and teaching us how to come to Jesus Christ by faith. Do you remember when the Father was teaching you and drawing you after His Son. Do you remember the newness and the joy and the experience of fellowship with God that you, that you had never known before? Wow, God isn't something that I have to convince myself of is real. God is real and He's here. And He's dealing with me. He's bringing me to His Son. He's teaching me how to feed upon Christ by faith and how to rest all of my soul's longings upon His Son because His Son is sufficient. This is John 6 language. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, Jesus says. And then He says, all who come to me are those who have been taught by the Father. That's what this verse is getting at. 
that moment when the Father came to teach you about saving faith in Jesus Christ. From that moment on, according to this verse, believers possess in full measure the blessing of fellowship with Jesus Christ. That fellowship is describing a union with Christ that guarantees our communion and our friendship and partnership with Him. We are those who have been called into fellowship with His Son. Now, what exactly does that mean? Be called into fellowship with His Son. Well, it's described in different ways throughout the Scriptures. For example, in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, this fellowship with the Son that the Father has called us into is described as a union with Christ in the likeness of His death. That every true believer who has been brought to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has been united to the likeness of Christ's death. That is, by the calling of the Father... And through the ministry of the Spirit, every believer has been brought into fellowship with Christ in his death. Now, Paul here is referring to Christ's death to sin. And he's using this as an argument to say that if you have truly been united to Christ in his death, you can no longer walk in sin. Because Christ who died to sin causes his people to die to sin. If we are in fellowship with Christ, we have been brought to a point where there is an, an absolute break that has taken place between our enjoyment of sin and sin's hold over us. Paul's focusing on our union with Christ's death. Here's the question. Why did Christ die? Well, Christ died for our sin. And what happened when Christ died for our sin? He died to sin. And the claims of death that were upon him as one who took our sins upon himself no longer could lay hold of him. Death could not keep him, Peter says. And so he was risen from the dead. Jesus Christ suffered the full penalty due to his people for their sin and destroyed sin as a taskmaster berating his people. You remember what Moses did to the Egyptian who was beating his brother, his fellow Hebrew, out in the field. What did Moses do? Well, he rose up and he killed him. Right? That is what Christ Jesus has done to the taskmaster berating his people. He has come up to sin and he has slaughtered him. He's taken the sword of sin, which is death, that sword that is wielded against every single human being in this world. Jesus has taken that sword out of his hand and laid that enemy open from thigh to neck. Jesus has destroyed death because he has destroyed sin. And for his people, those whom the Father is calling into fellowship with his Son, God brings his people to the point where they too die to sin. And sin is dead to them. It doesn't mean that there's perfection. It doesn't mean we never stumble in sin. But it does mean that a radical break between the believer and the believer's sin has taken place. One who is in union with Christ, who has fellowship with Christ, can no longer have joyful fellowship with that which put Christ to death. 
And so this fellowship with Christ is described as a fellowship with his death, a union with Christ in his death. It's also described in Romans 6, 4 as a fellowship in his resurrection power and life. It says, therefore, we've been buried with him, with Christ, through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This new life that Christ has as the one who has been raised from the dead manifests itself in the lives of those who are united to him. They walk in a newness of life. And if you don't have that newness of life, you don't belong to him. There's a fellowship with Christ that is defined by resurrection life and power. A power over sin, a power to walk in fellowship with God, a power to stand firm and to do the Lord's will, even when it's costly. There's a resurrection life that we partake in and we have fellowship in when we are united to Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians 1.9 is talking about. It's also talking about our fellowship with Christ in his ascension and in his exaltation and glory. Did you know that? The same degree to which Jesus Christ is glorified right now, at this moment, if you are a believer in Jesus, you are just as glorified as he is. Not experientially for you right now, but in the eyes of the Father you are. Ephesians 2.6. It says that when the Father called us into fellowship with his Son and raised us up, out of our sin and into life and gave us a new principle of holiness and righteousness and godliness by His Spirit. It says that He also seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Now what caused Christ to be seated in the heavenly places? Was it not His glorification? Was it not the fact that He conquered death and sin and hell? He took the wrath of God and rose up victorious over it, and now He is seated on the throne of grace as a sign of His victory. It's His glorification that causes Christ to be seated in the heavenly places. What this verse says is that as Jesus Christ is glorified and seated in heavenly places, so also are His people glorified in Him. It's sure. This is why the language of Romans 8 is all past tense. Right? Those whom he foreknew, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Because it's already happened to Christ, it's as if it's already happened to us, and we are simply waiting for the full manifestation of what is already ours. So these are some of the things that the Scripture means whenever it talks about being called into fellowship with Christ. We are united with him in his death, and we die to sin because he died to sin. We are united with Him in His life, and we walk according to a new principle of worship and holiness before God. We are united with Him in His glorification. And our standing with the Father is secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that this is the fellowship with Christ that 1 Corinthians 10.16 is talking about. We've had this fellowship with the Lord from the moment we were brought to saving faith in Him. But it's at the table where the Holy Spirit takes that fellowship and furthers its power and application and our experience of in our worship of Christ. This is how the Holy Spirit uses the table of the Lord as a means of grace for the believer. It becomes 
an instrument in the Spirit's hands of furthering and increasing and growing and nurturing and strengthening and causing the believer to have a fuller realization of the beauties and the glory and the power and the blessing that comes through communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that's a wordy sentence. I could not cut it down. The table of the Lord is a table of communion because it's the place where the Spirit brings us as believers into a fuller realization of the communion we already possess with the Lord Jesus Christ. When we truly come worshiping Christ for what He has done, when we truly come to the table calling upon Him and drawing near to Him by faith, the Holy Spirit is pleased to take all the blessings that are already ours in Christ and to press their reality with greater fullness in upon our hearts. That's the worship that takes place at the table. That is the sharing, the fellowship, the communion in the body and blood of Christ that is ours when we take of the bread and the cup. Now, as we come to a close, I need to point out, and I would be remiss if I didn't, that there's a key that opens this door of fellowship to us. And without that key, the door remains closed and locked. And that key is the key of faith. This is the kind of participation in the Lord at His table that is necessary to strengthen the hearts of believers in the truth and the only kind of fellowship with Christ that will enable us to worship Him in a worthy manner when we come to the table. But the key to all of it is faith. Worship at the table must be the outworking of a genuine faith in Christ Jesus, or the Holy Spirit will not lay His hands upon it and bless it. I think we've learned that from Christ Himself, haven't we? In Christ's ministry, what do we find over and over again? It was faith that he was pleased to exalt and bless. Every time a sinner came to him reaching out with the empty hands of faith, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was pleased to reach down and fill those empty hands with himself. Let me ask you a question as we come to an end here today. Some of you are hearing this message and you know intimately and deeply the blessing of fellowship with Christ at His table, the kind of fellowship I'm talking about. Some of you know that blessing, and I rejoice in that reality. I pray that you long to know it more and that you keep pressing after the Lord to know Him more. But maybe you are sitting here thinking to yourself, while all of this sounds great, but I'm not sure if I've ever worshipped Christ like that at his table. What if you are one who in all of our times of partaking in the Lord's table, you are not able to say confidently that you experience this kind of fellowship with Christ by the Holy Spirit? What should you do? How should you think about that? Well... Let me answer your questions with some questions. Could it be that 
we are not experiencing the blessings of the table the way we ought to be experiencing them. Because when we come to the table, we are not partaking in the elements in a worthy manner. Could it be that when you come to the table of the Lord and you are not experiencing it as a means of grace, could it be simply because you are not coming in faith? Could it be that it's turned into an empty ritual that we just do because it's what we've always done? Could it be that you are not approaching Christ in a worthy manner here at the table because you are not reconciled with your brothers and sisters? Could it be that there is hidden sin in your life that you need to expose and you need to deal with and you need to lay bare before God and plead the blood of Christ to cleanse you from it? There are all kinds of hindrances that could be keeping you from experiencing the blessing of the Lord at His table. And I want you to know that until those hindrances are dealt with, the Spirit of God will never make this a means of blessing to your soul. you got to come in faith. You have to come genuinely unto the Lord. Not perfectly. Not without sin whatsoever. But with a sincerity to lay hold of what Christ has done for you as it is represented here at the table. That's one option. The other option could be maybe you have never experienced this kind of fellowship with Christ at His table because you don't yet belong to Him. Maybe there are sins that you are holding on to, but more than that, maybe there are sins that are still holding on to you. You've not yet been brought into that living fellowship with the Son of God that sets you free from your sin. And therefore, you don't have the power to walk in freedom and fellowship of the Spirit. What should you do if that is you? Well, you must retract your grip on your sins, first of all. You must stop clinging to these chains that are binding you and holding you back from coming to the Lord. To use biblical language, you must repent of your sins and come to Jesus. Repentance means to turn away from. What should you do if you've never known the Lord in truth and in spirit and you don't know what it means to have the blessing of fellowship with Him? My friend, you need to repent. And you need to run to Him and you need to cling to Him violently until He sets you free from your sin and fills you with His Spirit and shows you the joy and the glories of the Gospel. That's your only option. Either that or you stop and you go to hell. Which one do you want? You either keep pressing after Christ until He comes or you go off and enjoy yourself now because this is all you get. That's not a viable option. I hope you know that. Jesus Christ is a perfect Savior and He is not withholding from us. He is not begrudging when He comes to have fellowship with His people. My friend, if you are not experiencing fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ as His child, it's probably because you are not His child. What father would ever treat his child with disdain? And hold his child aloof. 
Do you really think that's the character and the nature of the God who saves sinners and makes them His children? No. No, absolutely not. My friend, if you've never known fellowship with Christ in the way that the Scriptures speak of it, then you need to go have dealings with Christ until He saves you. And don't let go. Don't stop until the Spirit of the Lord breaks in upon you. I'm not going to ask you to pray a prayer. Walk an aisle. Do this or that or any other thing that will ease your conscience. I'm going to call you to go to Jesus Christ Himself, your high priest, and have dealings with Him. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray that you know that. I pray that you know the joy and the fellowship of that. And as we prepare to partake in the table next week, I pray that you are all refreshing yourselves in these truths of fellowship with Christ in the week ahead. So that when we come here to the table and we seek to lay hold of Christ by faith in these elements, you're ready. You're ready to approach this table by the Spirit. You are ready, coming in true and living faith. And you are pleading the Lord Jesus Christ as your hope. May that be. May the Lord work that into all of us. Would you please pray with me now? Lord God, you are the one who uses the weakness of men to accomplish great things according to your will. Lord, you are delighted to use your word when it's proclaimed. And I pray that you would use your word this morning or to affect change in each one of us. We want to be more like Jesus. Lord, we want to see Jesus more clearly. We want to love you more fully than we do now. So please, work that reality into our hearts, Lord. Show us our sin. Let us walk in the fear of your name and turn away from sin and seek and strive to abide in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for these blessings to be ours in increasing measure. And as we come to celebrate the table next week, may we know these realities we've been looking at more fully by the grace and the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, making the symbols, the spiritual realities symbolized in those symbols real to our hearts. Father, we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the benediction again from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.